Hi, welcome to On Jordan, a podcast on the latest developments in Jordanian politics featuring interviews with experts on the Hashemite Kingdom. My name is Aaron Magid, a former Oman-based journalist now in Washington. Jordanians were shocked to learn in April that government officials accused Prince Hamza, the half-brother of King Abdullah, of being involved in an act of sedition. Prince Hamza lambasted government corruption and quote-unquote incompetence before being apparently placed under house arrest after a visit by Jordan's army chief. While thanking Jordan's security forces, King Abdullah noted, I speak to you today, my family and my tribe, in whom I place my implicit trust and from whom I draw determination to assure you that the sedition has been nipped in the bud. This summer, a Jordanian security court convicted Bassam Awadallah, a former royal court chief and reported advisor to Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, as well as Sharif Hassan bin Zaid, and they were each sent to jail for 15 years. Prince Hamza, who was previously Jordan's crown prince until 2004, has not been publicly charged with any crime. To better understand the April sedition affair, it is great to welcome Professor Basma Momani to the podcast. Dr. Momani is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo and a fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute. She also previously served as a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you for joining us, Professor. My pleasure. So the events in April involving Prince Hamza were confusing for even those who follow jo- Jordan closely. What exactly happened? Well, I, th- I still think it's a mystery uh, for those who follow Jordan closely. To make a long story short, uh, the government accused Prince Hamza of colluding with Basim al-Wadallah. Uh, this is a uh, Jordanian uh, national of Palestinian origin who also happens to have Saudi citizenship and is a close confidant of Hamad bin Salman, uh, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, to have colluded in some way to undermine the government or the state. And we never really got a clear picture of what exactly was said. And I think that was really to protect the reputation of Prince Hamza um, and to really keep the sanctity of the, of the monarchy intact. But it's fair to say that I think if you read between the lines, there was uh, some discussion, or at least the accusation is that uh, Prince Hamza and uh, Basim Awadallah were somehow colluding to um, overthrow the king, um, somehow perhaps uh, strengthen in result ties between Jordan and Saudi Arabia. And there's also a connection to the Israeli plot here and that there's even the suggestion that this was all about them accepting the deal of the century at the time that the Trump administration was pushing through. You know, I think we have a lot of confusing bits and pieces, um, but it's quite clear that at the end of the day, there was an accusation of some form of sedition against uh, King Abdullah. Do we know how along in the plot they were in supposedly overthrowing King Abdullah? Well, I mean, I think the government has claimed that, uh, of course, they were not close to actioning this plot, that it was still just that, a plot, and not yet being uh, actioned. There was no, in their language, uh, any uh, immediate threat to the state or to the monarch. Um, so I think it's fair to say that it wasn't, you know, far along in the plot. And certainly the fact that, you know, you had no real kind of resistance um, and those that were arrested, including uh, some of the tribal members that were accused to be a part of this so-called sedition plot, they were not necessarily in the, let's say, places of of power to execute. So, you know, they weren't the head of the army, they weren't 
um, head of police, they, were, they weren't going to be able to do it uh, unless they went to the next step of actually enlisting people within um, the army or police. And we didn't see any kinds of arrests uh, there. So I don't think it was too far along and if there ever was a plot um, to actually execute it. How involved was the Saudi Arabian government in this affair, given the arrest of Bassam Awadallah? Well, certainly the Saudis have always denied any involvement in this. Um, and uh, I think we saw very clear symbolic moves by uh, the Saudis to send royals and other representatives to Jordan very quickly. And we saw several statements condemning the so-called plot. So I think the Saudis were very quick to want to uh, ensure that they were not uh, entangled in this. But it's hard not to see if there was such a thing as a seditious plot, uh, not to see how the Saudis would not be connected because, of course, Bassem Awadallah is close uh, advisor to MBS. And if, again, the plan was to then push the deal of the century, well, of course, MBS, we know, um, has from you know other reporting that's been done, um, you know, has mildly supported it. You know, his close ties with Jared Kushner and the, the Trump family is there. And certainly, I think you, you can go into sort of Saudi politics and why they didn't embrace the deal of the century. But that was partly because I think the, the king himself, King Salman, um, said this is not going to happen on my watch. You can do it after I die, but certainly not before then. And so I think there is enough circumstantial evidence to suggest that uh, the Saudis if there was a plot, we're certainly, I think, in on it. Um, but again, that, that, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't address the broader question as to whether or not there was really a seditious plot in place. I guess what's confusing is some Jordanian analysts mentioned, as you did, about the, the deal of the century and the connection with President Trump. But this plot happened, or they were arrested in April of 2021, after President Trump was no longer in office, and the deal of the century was not seriously being considered by the U.S. administration at the time. So how, why would that be connected? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I found the whole argument uh, weak. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. If this was a plot to happen, uh, precisely, it would happen well before Biden took over. I mean, that would be, you know, if you were to execute such a plot, it should have happened before uh, when the Trump administration was very much uh, forgiving of these kinds of uh, actions. And there was no love loss. It was very clear between Trump and uh, King Abdullah. And the Biden administration made a point of, of really embracing uh, King Abdullah as soon as he came to power. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that was, again, back to the broader question of, you know, was there ever really a plot? It's really hard to see that it was still in circulation or still being considered post, uh, post-Trump. Uh, that was really a hard argument to make. So Queen Noor tweeted on Sunday that Prince Hamza remains in home imprisonment, quote unquote. How credible is her claim and what does the future look like for Prince Hamza? Oh, I think that's very credible. I mean, you know, the fact that he hasn't really been seen uh, since that, uh, since the one time, but I think he was seen praying with his his brother um, at the anniversary of his father's death. I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, I would even argue that perhaps even before the plot, he was being watched carefully and you could tell there was just not the same exposure he'd had uh, previously. I mean, he is seen as a bit more charismatic, perhaps more a, a man of the people. And, and, you know, that's, I think, deemed to be threatening for the current monarch. Certainly, um, I think there's credibility to the fact that he's some sort of 
house arrest, but I'm sure um, the Jordanian government wouldn't uh, put it in those terms. And what do you think about the future for Prince Hamza? It's a tough one, you know. I think uh, even though there is a lot of doubt, I'm sure, because this plot just seems so, again, convoluted, confusing, and there are contradictions, uh, I think there is a bit of a, a stain on Prince Hamza's reputation because there will be some people who, you know, were maybe indifferent to him and now feel very much upset that, you know, this might have been cooking up in the background and, and do feel that this is disloyal of, of Prince. So there's, I'm sure, some who are now look upon him disfavorably when they were sort of neutral before, but he's also gained popularity in some circles. Um, certainly, I think... At the very beginning, uh, when he had some of those messages out um, by video, uh, you know, his sort of appeal to the common common man and, and speaking about corruption, which is a, an, you know, an endemic challenge uh, in the Jordanian economy and certainly the struggle of, of people, you know, he did, I think, increase his base of support there. But, you know, as far as uh, future, I don't know. Um, it's It's too early to tell, but I think right now there's just a lot of confusion and I think a, a, just a, a sort of a relief that there's just stability again. And, and you know, it's uh, preferable to, to continue on the path of obviously the, the current king and the succession plans that the current king has with his son as crown prince. So I think that's where we are, but um, certainly uh, no one knows the future. While there are no public opinion polls around what percentage of Jordanians supported Prince Hamza? I mean, to be very frank, I'd be guesstimating, uh, you know, my, again, as an academic, uh, as you said, there's no opinion polls, but, you know, just by sense of, you know, you can look at social media and for a while there, for example, when he was first arrested, you know, saw some people change their, their picture profile to Prince Hamza. Certainly there were a lot of hashtags in support of him. I found that that's kind of decreased over time um, as sort of the the whole news story has kind of faded away from public eye. But, you know, I think he he did garner some support, particularly, I think, by those in the middle class who are really frustrated, um, who do see a lot of cronyism, um, who are frustrated with the corruption. And, you know, him talking about this disparity of wealth and how there are people who are clearly uh, succeeding uh, at the expense and the backs of others. Um, it appealed to a lot of people and it resonated. So, you know, I don't, I wouldn't doubt that he still has uh, a base of popularity and support. But I think the key thing or measurement um, is, you know, did we see any demonstrations in support of him? We didn't. It's still on social media. Um, and I think whatever support he had on social media, it's kind of quiet, you know, quietly faded away. And again, Jordanians tend to revert to just wanting stability. You know, they're, they're in a neighborhood that has so much turmoil. They're the recipient of refugees um, from Palestinians to Syrians to Iraqis. And so their creature comfort is to just have stability and not to shake things up. So I think that's where most Jordanians are right now. Certainly COVID has not helped matters. The economy is struggling. People are much more focused on, you know, the economic situation than they are perhaps in the you know, royal palace intrigue um, of the day. What are the long-term implications of this sedition affair, if any? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think it, you know, it certainly gave us exposure, uh, the broader public exposure to perhaps fissures within the, the royal family that we'd never seen before. You know, they've often 
acted in unison. And, you know, there's always been rumors of this and that kind of faction and this prince falling out of favor. But this was perhaps the most exposed uh, that we've ever seen. So it really does, I think, um, kind of shake that, I don't know, that sense of, of comfort in, in the monarchy being, you know, steadfast and, and stable. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a sense of relief that, um, you know, this seditious plot is not there anymore. It's been contained or controlled. I don't think um, at the end of the day, you know, most Jordanians would have wanted to see an overthrow of the king more because of the potential chaos that would ensue with that. I mean, these things are ever, never rarely um, done without some sort of turmoil. And, and Jordanians are very much allergic to turmoil and, and that kind of you know, shake up that it would ensue. So I think overall, Jordanians are probably pleased that they're back to the status quo. And what does the April affair say about King Abdullah's leadership? Well, I mean, I think hopefully, um, I think what the, the palace needs to see from this is that there is real Jordanian suffering. Um, you know, the economic situation of Jordanians is absolutely tough. Corruption is beyond, uh, you know, beyond belief and, and people are super frustrated. And if there's any lesson, I think it's for the palace to see that, you know, Prince Hamza was able to tap into a frustration, a real frustration with the economic and uh, socio-political situation of how crony capitalists have really taken over the country. Um, you know, again, it was a bit ironic to see, a, you know, a prince kind of rile against the elite, um, the financial elite. But I think uh, Jordanians took to heart that message because they, they, do, they do feel that way, that there is a strong uh, undercurrent of corruption in the business class, that, you know, they, they, they play by different sets of rules than the average Jordanian. And, you know, you just have to look around. I mean, Amen is the perfect, you know, um, uh, you know, bifurcated society, there's the haves and have-nots, and, and the haves are living really, really well, and the have-nots are suffering. And it's not just, uh, you know, uh, unskilled labor, it's your middle-class professionals who are often the have-nots now. So I think there's hopefully a message uh, that was received. I mean, it's hard during, you know, a COVID situation where the entire world economy is suffering, and, you know, everyone is facing the same dynamics of of you know low growth and, and high debt but i do hope that the message the palace and the government receive is that they need to invest more in the people well thank you very much professor i really appreciate your time oh my pleasure Aaron. here's what else you should know this week jordanian lawmakers brought on tuesday amid a discussion on proposed constitutional amendments Members of Parliament in Amman threw punches and shoved each other during the chaotic session that was broadcasted on live television. Lawmakers sparred over whether to include the term female Jordanians in the amendments. The Islamic Action Front, the Muslim Brotherhood's political arm, opposed including the terms female Jordanians or female empowerment, saying the terms were unnecessary and would add legal problems, quote-unquote. Jordanian human rights activists stressed the importance of gender equality, pointing to the fact that Jordanian women are unable to pass down Jordanian citizenship to their children when marrying a foreigner. Before I go, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google, or Apple Podcasts to make sure you're notified of new episodes. And feel free to listen to previous week's episodes on Jordanian press freedoms with Rana Swayze and Jordan's economic challenges with Dr. Jawad Anani. 
I welcome any suggestions about future guest hosts on the podcast or topics worth covering. Please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Aaron Magid or via email aaron.magid1 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.